do we pretend that demand gen is our only budget and everything does demand gen and we'll just sneak in brand related activities otherwise it's fascinating but it's problematic and it speaks to the challenge of the brand they have to pretend that what they are doing is only going to drive demand it's like saying i'm only going to do thing in sales that are going to close the deal Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Drew Nicer. Drew's the founder of Renegade, a marketing agency in New York City, and founder of CMO Huddles. He's also the host of the CMO Podcast and author of an excellent new book titled Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. In our conversation, we talk about a topic uh, I don't delve into too much on the show, and that is marketing and brand building. However, I loved Drew's new book in part because of the lessons it holds for sellers and sales leaders in particular. We talk about how tough the environment is for CMOs and how it's really similar to that for CROs. You know, everybody has an opinion on marketing and sales. These leaders have to work with limited resources, unreasonable expectations. Their bosses don't trust them, and they get fired frequently. So the lot of a CMO sounds a lot like the lot of a CRO. In the same vein, we dig into why Drew believes that marketing has become way more complicated, but rarely more effective. Again, with lessons that apply equally well to selling. We talk about why it's important to boil the company promise, you know, that you use in your marketing and sales messaging, down to eight words or less. And what happens when you achieve that? We also dive into why brands with clear and consistent messages are far more likely to get the sale than the ones who pursue a matrixed approach to messaging. We talk about what that says about taking the right approach to your messaging in your account-based marketing. And Drew also shares a great lesson for sellers about clearing away the clutter in your communications and forget all that you can do and focus on what you must do to make a difference for your buyer. So all this and much, much more before we get to Drew, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. You could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate it. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Drew, welcome back to the show. It is great to be back. Yeah, well, it's always <laughs> always great to have an opportunity to chat. Um, yeah, I was trying to think as, as we, thinking back, is like, I can't remember how we connected in the first place. I'm pretty sure it was through some influencer program. I think that may have been where we met. Uh, but I did look, go back, and our first podcast was five and a half years ago. And then, <laughs> right, and then we did another one about a year and a half, about a year later. So this is number three, which is I'm, you know, that's kind of cool. You're you're getting up in rarefied. I know territory there. Pretty special. Yeah, I know. You're pretty special. Yeah, threes, threes. Not many people get to three. <sighs> a five, five becomes a real milestone. I uh, know. So, so well, like Saturday Night Live. We all have our goals. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. This, yes, <laughs> I imagine it's one of your one of your career goals is let's be on it Andy's is. show five times. Five yes. times <laughs> and say something different each time. <laughs> well, you keep writing a new book. We'll talk about new things. Uh, all right. Well. Yeah, no hurry on that one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, we're going to talk about your new book, Renegade Marketing: Twelve Steps to Build Un or to Building, excuse me, Unbeatable B two B Brands. Um, 
yeah, I really like this book. Do a great job writing um, and incredible stories in it. So I think for people listening, and we'll touch on some of those. But so before we get into that, you'll just tell people a little bit about yourself. People maybe didn't hear what the first or second episode. Oh, well, I can give them the numbers. It was 183 and 542. So they were going to oh, want to go back and study to catch up. And, study, uh, yes. Hold, yeah, yes. go back and study those. As uh, you binge my entire catalog of a thousand episodes. Yes, exactly. Please. And right. But the leap from 183 to 542, I mean, it was that's like 360 episodes that you managed to do in, in like a less than a year. It was incredible. So kudos to you. Now, in terms of me, uh, let's see, I have a marketing agency called Renegade, huh? And, uh, huh. And I've had that for a long, long time. Uh, but I think probably the most interesting part of me is that almost everything good in my life has happened as because of something bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just, it's so sure. funny. And I, I'm almost positive that I can look re- all good things uh, from from college to where, how I got to New York to ending up meeting my wife, all of these things, plus starting right. companies, plus pandemic, all of that. And so um, well, I wait, feel wait, you don't, like- you don't, Wait, 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 you don't get off that easily. So yes. let's tell the story about how something bad led to you meeting your wife. Okay. So- um, uh, when I first got to New York in in the in the '80s, I was at a party and I saw a woman across the way, and I said to a friend because I had heard another friend tell this story. I was borrowing somebody else's fantasy, and I right. pointed at this woman and I said, <laughs> "I'm going to marry her." So we ended up going out, and I actually asked her to marry me. And fortunately, she said no, because <laughs> huh? and it was an g- amazing moment because it's like. Is that what I wanted to happen? Um, and it worked out really well for her. She found the right guy. Uh, and then I ended up meeting my wife, who's just amazing. And it was just such a wonderful thing that I got lucky there, right? Yeah. She knew she knew the situation. I was living this fantasy based on a statement I made at a party on someone else's <laughs> fantasy. Yes, one can get lost. But anyway, yeah. that worked out very well. That's just one example. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, but I've had this conversation with other people not that long ago, actually, is that, that uh, yeah, I mean, changes are prompted by, in life, that lead to positive things. It's, yeah, whether you're, for me, I mean, a decisive moment in my whole career and life was uh, a startup falling apart, you know, imploding uh, on a Friday, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, found myself. I just purchased my first home. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I had mortgage payments. Suddenly, was just jobless. Like you know, three months after buying my first house, and going home that evening and reading an article in Fortune magazine about this company in the valley. And so I was in, living in Silicon Valley at that time. Um, that was sort of revolutionizing the satellite communications business. And I cold called him on Monday for an interview and got a job and and yeah, completely changed the arc of my my career, my sales career, my business career and, and my life. 
I, you know, I have a similar story that sort of gets to this book and how come I've interviewed 450 CMOs at 2008. I tell the story, it's December 17th, 2008. And I remember the mm. date because it was my mother's birthday. The phone rings. I think it's my dad because he's calling me to remind me to remind, it's my mother's right. birthday. And it wasn't, it was, a cl- it was a client of ours for whom we were about to launch this incredible website and who set, starts the conversation with, Hey, Drew, you know that half a million dollars that we owe you? Pause. Oh, yeah, (laughs) I do. Yeah. Um, Well, we're not going to be able to pay because of Madoff and a scandal and all this other things. And so, and that most people losing a half a million dollars, not a big deal. For me, it happened to be our entire cash flow because I just bought the company from Dentsu. That was our cushion. And so at that moment, there's this. And oh, by the way, 70% of our business was walking out the door. So it was total reinvention time for Renegade and it was scale back. And so we decided to sort of, we're going to put all our eggs in the social and content basket. And to do that, I realized I better be really good at creating content. So I started writing, I said, I'm going to write a blog post a month. Uh, I'm sorry, a week. Mm-hmm. And I'm and that time I started writing for Fast Company. Once you commit to writing, you go, I better commit to interviewing because you got to have something you write about. I'm not one of these people, right? right? So I started interviewing CMOs. And so 13 years later, I've interviewed 460. The first 100 ended up getting to my first book. Um, 260 of them have been in the podcast. And it sort of even got me to through this most recent recession uh, or the pandemic where I ended up starting another company. So there's like... All these crises sort of, to me now, say, okay, this is opportunity time, uh, which is a kind of a thing I think that comes with maturity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maturity. I agree. You get a different yeah. perspective on things. Yeah. What was the new company you started? So that's CMO Huddles. So oh, CMO Huddles, right? Yes, I'm right. Yeah. And so what well, happened? Explain, so explain that for people because that's that's yeah. a really interesting thing you're doing. So uh, March second. 2020, good friend of mine, Pete Cranick, founder of CMO Club, sold this club to Salesforce. So that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Good for Pete. Awesome. I'd been part of the club for 12 years. That was in my one of my ways of getting into the club and giving to the club was to do these interviews. So on this somewhere along the way, uh, once the pandemic started, I went, okay, I don't know if our business is going to survive. But I know this, we can make a lot of friends and we can help a lot of CMOs who are in trouble. And we're going to do it in a way that probably the club and Salesforce are going to be too busy uh, to be thinking about. So I started huddling for free, just got the CMOs that I knew. Between April 1st and October 1st, we met 55 times. 55 times. That's almost as many podcasts as you recorded in that period. Um, (laughs) And... And in the course of that, it was very clear there was a business opportunity, that there was a community to to build, and that I could help really make a difference because I believe CMOs can change the world by driving purpose. So right. if I could just help CMOs, I would be having this sort of lifetime fulfillment and all of this energy that I put into interviewing CMOs would sort of pay back in, in a wonderful way. And so we started CMO Huddles officially October 1st. We just had our 90th subscriber. We're growing. It's just amazing. And I'm like a happy person because of it. Yeah. Well, and so it sort of ties to one of the things in the book that that really struck me is just how expansive the role of CMO can be in, in a company. 
in ways that that I don't think I'd really thought of before. Yeah, and it's problematic. It's problematic from the get-go, and that's sort of why my first chapter is clear away the clutter, because if you say to the CMO, okay, you're responsible for customer, you're responsible for demand, driving, you know, getting a certain percentage pipeline, you're responsible for brand, but we may not be able to call it brand, you're responsible for maybe customer experience, maybe um, uh, internal communications, employer brand, corporate brand, all of these things. And, but you don't get a budget and you don't get a staff. So good luck. Right. And so it's a job that is unfortunately set up for failure because it's the only one that changes in every organization. If you're the head of sales, you have a very clear mandate, (laughs) right? I mean, it might be different in terms of the methodology used and so forth, but you can go from one company to another as a head of sales or as a CFO and pretty much slot in. CMO job is customized, and it's mm-hmm. re- because of that, it's, it's quite hard. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, I mean, the environment when, that you described in the first chapter about the environment for CMOs in terms of the work environment is, it's, it's yeah, reminiscent of sellers. I mean, you said, first of all, everybody has an opinion on marketing, which is true, um, is advertising in particular, but everybody's an expert on it. Uh, Everybody has an opinion about sales and how easy it should be to sell. Um, you know, say they have to work with you know limited resources and unreasonable expectations. Certainly true with with uh, CROs these days. You talk about bosses don't trust them. Hey, <laughs> that's certainly the case, and they get fired frequently. I mean, the average tenure of a CRO these days is less than a year and a half. Wow. Okay, that's even worse than CMOS. Yeah, I mean, it's not even wow. enough to sort of bring your people in, and 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 this is I'm talking in tech companies. It's year and a right. half, okay. but but, um, but it may be true other beyond that. But it's it's like yeah, you don't. It's like barely more than one business cycle. You can't even build your own team. You know, it's like a a you know professional <laughs> sports coach. I, I'll default to soccer. My favorite sport is is uh, can't even bring in their own players and coaches and implement their system in in less yeah. than that time. No, and it, ta- it does take time. It's the same thing for marketing. And marketers in particular have this really interesting dance that they have to play, which is they have to get some quick wins to build credibility in the C-suite. And mm-hmm. at the same time, they often are said, hey, we have a brand problem. You got to fix that. We, we've got a, a you know, sales enablement problem. You got to fix that. They give, they're given a list of about 15 problems, and they're given six months to solve them. Right. Right. And some of those aren't solved overnight. Uh, I just I just did an interview with a CMO who walked in the door to a company that had thirty percent of their mentions were negative, <laughs> <laughs> and so from the beginning it's like okay that's not a problem that you can necessarily fix quickly because you have to go in and understand what the sources of influence and how that's happening and so eventually she did and she's really proud because a year and a half later uh it's down to 5% and which means that 95% are positive and you know the business is growing and and she really solved the problem but she had a ceo who understood that this was a problem that was going to take time. And this is where the disconnect is. And I'm sure it's the same in sales is expectations versus mm-hmm. reality are way out of whack. Yes. Yes. And especially in a venture environment. I mean, I, right. I think that that's, that's more of the case. But it's, it's 
Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> a year and a half is no time whatsoever. I mean, if, if you're obviously, if you're obviously incompetent or not up to the task, I should say incompetent, but not up to the task, that's one thing. But yeah, you layer sort of unreasonable expectations on it is, yeah, it becomes very difficult. But I think you talked about with marketing, though. And you know, give this example: the one you just gave, where the woman is is charged with, you know, have these negative mentions. And this thing that sort of again struck me in the book is is that she can't really solve that problem because yeah, it's multifaceted, right? You know, what's happening in success, what's happening on the product side of things. You know, we can go to all these departments that have an impact on that that don't work for the CMO have to be pulled into alignment and fix it. And so the CMO, in some respects, in the way you described the role too, becomes becomes sort of the I don't say the glue, but the driver. They can. The great ones do. They drive strategy in their yeah. organization, and they step back and say, you know what, we're we're going to redefine our values. And if we have a negative sentiment, and our value is customer satisfaction, then we have a problem that we need to fix. This you know, with a number of steps, and we all have to agree that we got to fix that problem together. But they are leaders first. And I'm not going to say that every one of the CMOs that I've interviewed are leaders first, but the Mm -hmm. great ones are. And if you're leading, you're building consensus, you're setting a vision, you're getting the resources, you're applying who does what, and and you get out of the way, (laughs) right? And so this is the real big issue right now. And I had to tell this fascinating thing that's happened in huddles of the last is this difference between can we talk about brand in the company? So I'm going to say uh, a salesperson inherently knows the idea of air cover, right? If they Uh walk in the door and somebody's heard of a company, then they know that's a good thing, right? Because that makes it a lot easier than if they have to introduce themselves and they are the company. So they understand the idea of air cover. They might understand the idea of awareness, but they definitely won't understand necessarily the idea of brand. Well, the same thing kind of applies pretty much in the C-suite, sometimes in venture fund, venture people. And so the result is you have CMOs in a lot of well-funded startups who can't use the word brand. And they're because brand sounds like fluffy colors of logos. Yeah, I can't, well, I can't attribute, (laughs) I can't attribute anything to brand. But in truth, you can but in well, order no, but that's to, what the CEOs are saying. Right, they're that's saying, what the CEOs are saying until yeah. they go to their country club and nobody's heard of the, the company they work for. And right. they go, oh, then awareness. I got awareness. I understand that. Right. And, and that's easy to measure. But so here we have in the debate was among these CMOs, and there was not agreement even among them, was do we use the word brand and go and have the courage to go educate our CEO and our investors that this word is important and we need to fund it and we need to treat it as a special thing because the metrics are going to be different? Uh Or do we pretend that demand gen is our only budget and everything does demand gen and we'll just sneak in brand-related activities otherwise? It's fascinating. But it's problematic, and it speaks to the challenge of the brand. They have to pretend that what they are doing is only going to drive demand. It's like saying, yeah. I'm only yes. going to do things in sales that are going to close the deal, yeah. right? Right. I mean, and we, we would encounter that. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we'll be, somebody will approach us as a potential sponsor for this podcast, and we're very fortunate. We have great sponsors uh, and great support uh, from our parent company on the, the podcast, but yeah, you get some marketers just say, "Well, so how many downloads do you get?" It's like, "Well, right. 
Yeah, it's who's listening, right? We get a lot of downloads, but I mean, we think we get a lot of downloads with the right people. But you know, in the podcast world, you don't get a lot of great quantification and segmentation on, on your your audience. And it's like, yeah, no, you know, if I can't do direct attribution to a lead to this source, just not interested. Well, and this is why the folks that have a freemium model are have are such a competitive advantage. Because if you can drive trial with a free product, you have easy at, attribution is easy. Everything that you do can be focused on, hey, we got this free product over here. And the risk of sure. trying is very low. And then it becomes, how good are you at, it's like I interviewed, and I think I talk about this in the book, Megan Eisenberg, when she was at uh, MongoDB, she mm-hmm. was getting something like 35,000 downloads a day. Right. For, for, I, well, okay, product I think you should growth. be able to- I think you could convert a few of those into paying customers and have a very healthy business. So those folks are lucky. And those folks, like one CMO who's in our huddle group, who I won't name, 90% of their attribute, they can, marketing drives 95% of pipeline. Mm -hmm. I mean, or 90%, I'm sorry, I'm overcrediting. 90%. By the way, you do that, you get a seat at the table. Yeah, if if they're if they're the right type of leads, yeah, you'd always get that argument from sales, right? <laughs> it's oh, like, well, come on. Oh, look, if these are people, if if, and I'm talking about not, we'll call it Mark a sales qualified leads. Oh, sales. Okay, all right, sure. You're driving ninety five. Yeah, I would, I would have killed for that as a salesperson. Yeah, because then you're just. I mean, the salesperson is basically saying, "All right, I got a lot of high quality leads. I got to figure out which ones we're gonna." talk to today and how many people are going to do it and boom, off you go. Yeah. And they're already trying the product. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the whole theory that you're, you know, the big buzzwords these days and in tech sales is product led growth. Yeah. That's what it's about. It certainly make makes it easy for people to try it. And yep. you know, your sale just becomes then how do I convert you at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Still, I, I mean, going back to where we started on this thing, it's a complicated world right now. Yes, uh, in the in the marketing and sales world, and that and one thing, and I'm curious from your standpoint if you're seeing this, but I'm actually seeing marketing and sales, the CRO and the CMO, working together more closely today than certainly five years ago, and there's no blame game. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ideally, that's the case, right? And right. I mean, there's certainly there's a. a a definite push uh, these days for this whole idea of revenue operations or more unified look at revenue, um, you know, creating a single source of truth across sales, marketing, customer success, and so on, uh, that drive decisions about how you're, you know, how you're going to market and how you're capturing customers. So, so yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the idea is that, yeah, let's break down the silos and align incentives and align targets and work together more effectively. And some companies are, are doing it. I mean, you're starting to see this, this idea of this revenue operations take hold. Yeah. And even if they don't call it that, I know several CMOs who would just have, we have Switzerland for data, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's the way they look, sort of look at it. It's a central place where all the data goes through and analyze and, and you don't have to have, you know, the salespeople have this, the marketing have people this, and the CEO or the COO or the CFO are in there looking at different things and picking out the metrics that they want, which is right. also another problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit from personal experience, 
yeah, the silos still exist, uh, especially with people I talked to on the show. But yeah, I mean, there's increasing awareness I'm seeing that a change is coming and a change is necessary. And, and yeah, it gets driven by CEOs that want to make sure that that happens. And I also think it's ABM has changed it a lot too. Uh, and it has. and I, I have a th- yeah, I mean, I think it because ABM only works if sales and marketing agree on a prospect list and a methodology and all those other things uh, to do it. And then you know, it's very clear what marketing needs to do as a result of the ABM process. And if they're using the data in the right way, you know, there's a lot of good things that can come from that mm-hmm. uh, that 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 notion of collaboration. I think it's it really has. Uh, that part, if if for companies that have made ABM work, there oh, is a high say. probability. Yeah, if they're very high probability. If they're making it work, the CMO and the CRO are on exactly the same page, and they're probably sharing reward systems. Well, they should be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. it's it's. I don't know. When I sort of extend that whole model serologically, it's like to me, it's like. These job titles should go away. So, I've th- you know, and we, that's a theory that you know uh, in the book CMO to CRO. You, I'm sure you're maybe familiar with it. Anyway, I disagree, and I'll just I'll tell you why. Sure. I think that a CMO, a great CMO who is a leader, recognizes the sort of the emotional impact of choice of words and visuals and design and. Mm-hmm will use that to inform communications across the organization internally and externally. And they often will be the only one in the organization who won't just say, well, let's just tell them it's cheaper, faster, and better. <laughs> right? That yeah. will, will, they might be the only one in the organization that will say, you know what, I know we have 15 features, but I can only comprehend one big one and three subsets of that. So, they're the only ones who can bring focus to this thing. And they're also, by the way, the ones that are have sort of accepted this complexity, which I talk a lot about in my book, which is so problematic, which is why B2B continues to not necessarily be a source of great marketing. <laughs> I mean, we have increased complexity and less effectiveness, or not necessarily an increase in effectiveness as a result of complexity. No, but that's it's a similar issue in in sales. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's way more complex. There's way more technology applied to it. Yet, I think if you were to look at basic units or measures of, of individual productivity, they haven't changed as a result right. of all that. So I'll see these things uh, when I'll see what they'll call a messaging grid. And mm-hmm. they'll have, we have nine personas uh, that they'll be targeting for this one particular product or service. Right. SaaS thing, and then they'll describe each of that those people very carefully with great oh, yeah. insights, and then they'll say, "Here are the three to twenty things that you need to remember to communicate to this one, and then the twenty things you need to communicate to this one, and the twenty and and I'm thinking as a salesperson, I couldn't even remember the first three. <laughs> well, plus and, they'd modify it themselves to fit what they feel comfortable saying anyway. Right. And so what happens in this process is that those salespeople, if they actually follow that methodology and did different communication um, to those things, and when the, the, the group actually gets together and meets, they're seeing different sides of the elephant. They don't even know it's an elephant. 
the old that's you know mm-hmm. and so the result is that you know we you I'm sure you saw the Gartner research on that is that if you have different messages different people you're 2.2 times less likely to get the sale. Well, yeah, and I thought that was a fascinating point you bring up in the book is is when you cite that that research is that that then sort of argues against some of the. Yeah, as you said, these these message grids, even to some degree, serve the way that you execute uh, ABM. I, I, you know, I so agree, and it's so hard to get that to to sort of make this happen because you have to have a big idea to begin with. Yes, and if you don't have a big idea and you don't have what we call a purpose driven story statement or something that encapsulates the sort, I'm going to call it the. So the, the the purpose of the brand and a promise of the brand all put together magically in eight words or less. In eight words or less, yes. Eight words or less. If you don't do that, then there is no hope that the rest of the stuff is going to hang together. Well, but I think the key point I was sort of taking away from this is, is just to follow up on that, is that you just need one. Yeah. Right? Just just have one. I mean, if you start with one, for most companies— that's yeah. brilliant because um, I've worked at companies where there's none, right. um, and what you see the impact of that is is that, is that even just with that one, let alone yeah, having a different message for each persona you speak to, they can't sellers can't articulate what it is they're selling. No, I, I, I you know, and I'll see a brief and I, from C, I saw a brief recently from a CEO of a relatively big company, and. I couldn't understand the first three paragraphs, and I've been in that category. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I see it constantly. It's like, yeah. And, you know, like listen to <clears throat> recorded phone calls from reps for clients and so on, you know, dating back years. And it's like, uh, yeah, the seller, the first thing they got out of the words out of their mouth is like, what do you do? Which is, you know, some form of that question is always asked. Right. And like, yeah, not really clear. I mean, there's jargon, yeah. there's, there's, uh, you know, well, jargon is the big offender, but it's, it's just, it's like, I always want to strive for what I call the V8 moment, you know, where right. people slap their forehead and say, oh, of course, right? Is, you know, you talk about eight words. I work with clients, you know, let's do it in five words, but five or eight, it's the same thing. It's like, well, and you talk about eight, but a lot of the examples you give are actually three words. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> is, is, is that's what you need as a company. Just have that. And yet, stop worrying about, I agree with you 100%, is you just confuse things if you say, look, we're going to vary this by persona. Um, you've got one. That's, that's what you live on. And one of the things that we talk about in the book that I think will help this, because if it's just three words, and I tell the story of where family comes first, which was like my favorite tagline I've ever written. And yeah, it's well, just well the f- give, give the background on that. Yeah, so um, family circle, this was many years ago, uh, literally, I think, 20 plus years ago, said, hey, we want to reposition the magazine. We want to come up with a marketing campaign to sort of get an advertiser. So it was B2B and -hmm. maybe readers involved. And so literally in the first meeting, I wrote down these four words where family comes first. And I just, you know, hid them. We went through the process and we ended up selling, they, they ended up buying the line 
At the same time, we said, you know, this is probably more than a line. There's a bunch of ways that you could activate this idea. And we gave them a long list of ways that you could activate. Um, their decision was to put it on the spine of the magazine and stop there. And it was on the magazine for 19 years, which is kind of cool, you know. I know, who reads were, the spine of a magazine? Though? Right, but if there was no, when, you know, bought a newspan, there it was, where family comes from. But here was the brilliant thing. What we said was that you could be the magazine that really does talk about family first and what that means. You could do an annual survey and study, and you could even do a symposium on family first. And it's a little bit of controversy because there may be a red-blue thing there. Sure. Maybe not. Right. But you know, they even, by the way, they had a chapter in the magazine every month called Family. We said, you know, you probably should put that first <laughs> in the magazine because it's Family Comes First, right? You know, it's like in your name, Family Comes right. First. So, uh, we gave them a bunch of ideas like that, all of which build to what would we would really put meat on the bones of this idea. And and the the problem with saying four words or eight words is you come up with this line, you fall in love with the line where family comes first. Great language, meaningless unless you put. And it's not their fault; they weren't looking for this. Was before start with why we gave them a right. purpose driven story statement before people were talking about purpose. Right. Right. And there was no framework in the marketplace for them to absorb this idea and say, oh my God, this is, we could be part of society. We could build community. We could be mm -hmm. more than a magazine. There wasn't an appetite for that. That wasn't what they had asked for. So in fairness to them, um, it, it, it was bigger than they were thinking. But I use that and tell that story because today there are lots of brands that we've worked with and other brands that actually take a promise like I mentioned, on the case and case paper, and yeah. they bring it to life against employees, customers, and prospects. And then everybody in the company knows what it means to be on the right. case. And if well, you're which sales, is such a critical point, though, too, which is, is and you talk about the role of, of marketing worth working with HR on this, is, is you want everybody in the company to understand this, not just sales and not just marketing. Yeah. I mean, they're the ambassadors. And the thing is that they want to feel pride in where they work. They want to mm -hmm. feel like what they're selling is important, not just, you know, I'm just getting this sale because I got to hit this number. And everybody works at a company. And right now, the employee crisis, what they call the great quit great or resignation. something, yeah. the yeah. great resignation, where they're not resigning as quickly are companies where they feel connected to them. And that's even harder with the people who were hired after the pandemic began and are 100% right. remote. So if you don't have a purpose, you're just an employee, you know, but you just have employees. And, and that's a shame because it's not that hard to get there. Uh, and once you do get there, it's an amazingly, it's such a powerful North Star and, and then I can tell you, if we want to take this idea and we want to do seven sales enablement things, no problem. Is, and you know if it's a good idea because you can bring that idea to life. Right. Well, I all think the way that's, down to sales enablement. Right. And that's the point I was to talk about. Is that, yeah, you, you have these ideas. It's easy to activate people's enthusiasm internally as well as externally for it. Yeah. And I mean, customers. I, I, I mean, it, it makes sense to customers. That's the thing that, that um, is so powerful that I think when companies aren't doing this work to come up with these purpose-driven statements, you know, eight eight words, five words, three words, whatever, it's it's like, yeah, it's your North Star. 
And and it it is, and it's sort of it. The the thing that people think about marketing and why marketing doesn't get it any respect in, in the C suite is they think it's a new logo, a new name, right. a color, right? right? And marketing, when done right, is an organizational shift. It's we're reorienting how we not just talk about ourselves, but what we do. And I often mm-hmm. talk to clients who say, hey, we, we want to rebrand. I'll say, why? Well, CEO's tired of the logo. So not good <laughs> enough. We're the wrong agency for you. We, we right. won't do that. Because right. that's new coat of paint on an old barn. It's useless. Why bother? Yeah. Doesn't change. Um, but if you're, something's changing, like you know, I was talking to a CMO who they had acquired 22 companies in the last three years. That's huge. Right, that no doubt had a huge impact on their products, on their product, I and mean, it right. had to. And so, in that case, you probably need to rebrand because where you started and where you were five years later, uh, you're a totally different company, and you, you know, you need people to understand that and bring them along, not just employees but customers too, and and then you can get to prosper. So it's just sort of the whole thing is let's make marketing kind of a real thing as opposed to uh, just. You know, yeah. Well, and to that point you're just making, though, is, and I think the challenge is, and that example about the company that's done all the acquisitions is, you know, one of the things you lead with in the book is this idea that you have to clear the clutter uh, out of and be, you know, more clear and consistent with your messaging. That's going to be a real challenge when you have, you know, that many companies that you have to bring under one umbrella or your company with, you know, large number of products. Uh, and so, that serve different markets. It's like, yeah, how do you how do you do that? Well, you know, my answer is you ditch some of them, and and I'll I'll tell you why. It was so interesting. This isn't in the book because it happened afterwards. I was interviewing uh, for a podcast the CMO of Sada Systems, and they used to support three cloud platforms. Mm-hmm. They did all big three. Uh, they made a strategic decision. I don't know how many months ago, maybe a year or two years ago, to just go with Google. Business like exploded. Suddenly, you would say, wait, their market, their addressable market dropped by 66% or Mm -hmm. maybe even more, but their business grew. Right. Because they actually had something they were really good at. (laughs) As opposed to being a generalist, they were were experts at this and became the leading at this. And one of the things that we see, particularly with B2B brands, is every time they have a new service, they think we got to have a new brand name with it. And it's like, no, you know, this is why platform sales are, it's, it's just focus. You got one brand, by the way, Adobe, which spent $4 billion on Marketo and $4 billion on Magento. When you ask right. Ann Lunas, are you a house of brands or a branded house? She'll say, we are a branded house. There's one brand right. name, Adobe. Adobe. $8 billion worth of acquisitions and there's one brand name. It's incredible, and you can watch their migration and how it's migrating right now. So anyway, the whole point is simple is hard. Mm-hmm. It's saying no to something. It's getting rid of stuff, and whether we're talking about a sales sheet where we say, we got 19 benefits, <laughs> or a website, we've got 75 products. Do you really, <laughs> do you well, really but- need all se- 75 of those? Well, so, well, do you need to message all 75? Right. Is that I the, mean, you can I mean, still keep the brands, but or the products, but yeah, they don't all have to be front and center, right? They can't be front and center because right. if they're all front and center, you got a mess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, you're making a comment about a platform, though. So yeah, yeah. And I I get into shaky ground here because I'm not. I don't talk about that in the book, and I'm not an expert on platforms. But I I can say this that brands that put one message in the marketplace and make it easier for the customer to buy them based on one major promise I have a higher success rate than ones that offer 25 things. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's such a critical thing, right? And it's 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 critical from a marketing standpoint, critical from a sales standpoint is yeah, I I uh, love to talk about discovery and in sales and I was actually presenting yesterday on a virtual forum. But yeah, you know, my thing is that you know dis- what you're trying to do in in sales is you're trying to not trying to uncover 20 needs, you're trying to uncover the most important thing that that the buyer is concerned about and focus your efforts on that. And you always well, I don't say always, but I'll say it, you know, always in the with the air quotes is your odds of winning are substantially higher if you focus on that one thing as opposed to focusing on 20 things. I, I, you know, I'm sure, I think you may remember the story that I tell about the construction company that was, uh, anyway, when I was on the co-op board and yes, yeah, the, the, the hallways, hallways, the hallways, yeah, right? The right. hallway guy. So this is where it's interesting. I mean, take what you're saying and take it one step further. We thought we were buying construction of hallways, uh, in a co-op. It turned out what we were really looking for is complaint mitigation. <laughs> we didn't yeah. know that. But when well, the, yeah, we'll, when they, we'll give a little background on the story because people aren't familiar with co-ops in New York City and so on. Right. So it's you know, co-op means you you own your apartment, but you're kind of in this weird sort of ownership structure. Anyway, I'm with on the board. With everybody else in the building. Yes. And you're on the board yeah. of directors. I'm on the board. And we hadn't renovated the hallways in 40 plus years, and it was time. And the there were seven members on the board, and none of us had gone through this process before. So we're all new. And we had three companies come in, bid on the job. We said to the first one, so what do you guys do? And so, well, we do hallways, and we do restaurants, and we do lobbies, and we do all sorts of things. Great. So and then said, so do you have a methodology? Yeah. Said, yeah, we started the bottom and work our way up. Great. Next one comes in, exact same thing. We do a lot of things. It's all great. This is an easy job. We start at the bottom, work your way down. Uh, third guy comes in and says, so what do you guys do? So we only do hallways uh, for co-ops and condos. We go, really? And he goes, yeah. And here are the 10 emails that you're going to need to send to your co-op owners because here's the deal. The biggest complaint is uh, dirt and so forth and that it's a, it's a mess during construction. So by the way, we take 10% of our dollars and put it into cleanup every single day. And we even have special sanders that have vacuums on it to try to keep the dust down. We pause and go, okay, what else should we know? He said, well, you always start at the top and work your way to the bottom because gravity is your friend. We go, okay, boom. (laughs) Then afterwards, I said to the guy, so how long have you been doing just co-ops and condos? And he said, "Uh, like four years. And I said, what were you doing before? He said, we were doing everything. And I said, how, was it hard at first? He goes, yeah, it was really hard. We were not, we had to turn business down. We had to walk away from biz. And I said, so how is it now? He said, oh, Pretty good. We win 70% of the RFPs that were presented. 70%. And we're more efficient than anybody else because this is all we do. All we do, yes. That's all we do. 
And so, anyway, it's such a great story because it's so illustrative of this concept of sometimes they don't know what they need, but if you can frame it in a way that really hits them, <laughs> like, oh my God, we're in the complaint mitigation business. That's what you're selling to us? Great. Thank mm-hmm. you. So, well, and, but it, yeah, I was going to say, it yeah. just speaks to this idea, though, of, of I'm not sure what their eight words were. Maybe we're in the complaint mitigation business, but. <laughs> They were focused. Yeah, you know, they cleared yeah. the clutter. Um, and yeah, I stress this time and time again to sellers is is again, you're not solving every problem the buyer has. Your job is to find the one that's most important to them and help them get that. Yeah. And it's very simple. And yeah. I mean simple's I just, hard. Simple's, simple's hard. hard. And it's it's risky. It's right? Risky. It's, it I, takes discipline. It takes this one. I, yeah, you know, worked in bid-based businesses for a long time, very large communication systems. And I just remember I had this epiphany one time when it was I sort of knew this idea and had been practiced about you know finding the most important thing. But it, it struck me when the customer put out an RFP and they had this compliance matrix that you had to fill in that ran to 300 line items. And you know, I told the seller, I said, you know, these aren't all equally important, right? Right. right. You know, they don't care about almost all of these. They hired a consultant somewhere who's who's built this table. I said, we need right. to find the one that's most important to them and find out who it's most important to and why. And if we do that, we'll win this deal. And so we just ignored most of the things that were on the compliance table because we did yeah. find out who was, what was most important. It was the CEO or the owner of the company, actually. And why? And right. doubled down on it. Took the risk. That's why that first section is about courageous strategy. It takes courage. Yeah, it does. It takes, I mean, you have to be willing to take, take a risk. Yeah. You know, I was just reading, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Kimberly Whitler's book, a new book on positioning. And she talks about, you know, in the packaged goods world, they test this stuff. They'll test a value proposition. They'll test a thing. Right. And it is, but nobody does that in B2B, but you could. So you could mitigate that risk a little bit if you wanted to. But probably the harder part is just getting everybody to agree that we need to focus. That's the harder part. Yeah. Well, Drew, we'll leave it at that. Okay. Great conversation, as always. Um, so tell people how they can connect with you and where they can pick up your book, which I've very much enjoyed reading. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. Uh, they can find the book on Amazon, audio, ebook, paperback. Uh, they can visit renegade.com and even, uh, I'm selling the hardcover book, by the way, for $333. Ooh. Direct. But it, Direct. it comes with 45 minutes of consulting. So my assumption is you buy the ebook, you'll read it, you'll go through the process, you'll develop it, and you'll say, hey, Drew, I want to talk about this for 45 minutes. So, um, and you can do that on renegade.com. <laughs> and of course, anybody who, if your listeners who wants to connect on LinkedIn, I'm Drew Neiser, the only Drew Neiser, you'll find me there. All right, Drew, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Drew Nicer, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.